This evening we will be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we will read the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, but before we do that, let's bow in a moment of prayer. Lord God, we ask that you would be with us as we open your word, as we meditate on it. We pray that everything that would be said would be in accordance with your word. That what would be taken, what would be remembered, what would be applied, would bring forth greater glory to you. And we pray that we would do that here now, and that you would bless it, Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First 12 verses of First Peter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Sends the reading of God's word. We'll also read Lord's Day 32, which deals with the question we will be asking in the message tonight. The question of why we obey. Lord's Day 32 answers this. Beginning the section in the Catechism on Gratitude, the Catechism is divided into three sections, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, or Sin, Salvation, Service. This is the first Lord's Day of that last section on Gratitude. We have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ, and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood, but we do good because Christ, by his Spirit, is also renewing us to be like himself, so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us, and so that he may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, is going to inherit the kingdom of God. 
people of God, this morning we looked at and answered the question, why pray? Which is a basic tenet of the Christian life. Now we look at an equally basic question, why do we obey? Why do we obey? Why do we do good? As the catechism words it. Well, as we seek to answer that, I would like to start out this service with another question. If you could live any way you wanted and still make it to heaven, what would you do? If you could do anything and even commit any sin and still be saved, would you? What compels your obedience? Is it a fear of punishment? If that were removed, would you then obey? Would you seek to obey? And just keep that in your back of your minds as we look at why do we obey the catechism seems to say that our obedience doesn't merit anything seems to be saying that you're not saved by your works well if that's true well then it would seem as if we would just want to not do good and just do what we want in the history of christianity many have claimed that many have done that to do what they wanted because in the end they figured well well, i'll be saved anyways Do we presume upon God's grace like that? Why should we obey? Our text from 1 Peter gives three reasons why we should obey. And these aren't the only reasons why we should obey, but they're three that we could look at and are pretty wide in their scope for our obedience. We obey because of the Lord's goodness. We obey because of the Lord's cornerstone. And we obey because of the Lord's witness. Verse 1 begins with, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now that therefore is saying, because of everything that has come before, because of who you are in Christ, therefore live this way. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I wonder if any of you are like me, that when you read lists of things that you must do and how you are to live, you kind of just tone out, just... Stop listening because it's boring or because you think you already know it. We know that we have to obey, and we we all do know that. So in one sense, you might be thinking, well, all right, this is going to be really short. We, we, We got it. We know this already. But it's always good to revisit it, and it's always good to really think of why do we do this? Why do we obey? Why is Peter calling us to this? And after saying this, Peter says that we are, in light of who we are, to rid ourselves of these things, but then then to crave pure spiritual milk. Rather than craving those things, rather than being deceitful, rather than seeking your own interests and living in pride, desire pure milk. Now what is this pure milk? The easiest answer and one that most commentators give is that it's God's word. Now, that's, that's certainly true, but we might more clearly say and accurately say that it's really the Lord. It's really the Lord who we receive through his word. And the distinction I'm making there is we're not to desire pure milk merely to know, merely to have head knowledge, to understand things for knowledge's sake. No, we're desiring our Lord. We're desiring that pure milk, which is what we receive in the word. So, so yes, we can say this pure milk is the word, but what we're saying is we're desiring God himself. 
That's what we're desiring when we read his word. That's what we're desiring when we obey. Because even through our obedience, we draw nearer to him. The imagery of milk here is powerful, that a baby can't grow without it. We all know this. We all know that animals in the animal kingdom need their mother's milk or they won't grow. We ourselves know that babies need milk. They crave it. They desire it. Without it, they're a mess. They're upset. We need to crave this milk. We need to crave God's word. We need to be on a constant feeding schedule of it. Which then raises the question is, how diligent we are we in this? How diligent are we in our devotions? How diligent are we in meditating on God's word throughout the day? How diligent are we in craving it? It takes work. We can't just read it and then think that we've accomplished it. Yes, I read my daily psalm, but are you craving it? Is it nourishing you or is it, was, it, was it a checklist to get done? These are the questions we must ask ourselves. This is how we need to live and grow in our faith. Parents, you need to be this way with your children. Do I have family devotions? Am I setting an example for my children that they would follow? Am I being an example that shows that I desire this milk? What about us adults? Do we desire it? Are we setting forth that example for all those who might see it? This is what we're called to do. This is how we are to obey. And we don't want to make this just a moralism like do your devotions and everything's going to work out fine. And No, it's not that. Again, it's our motivations, it's our desires. It's what we long for. It's a search for God. Even in our, our, even in our obedience, we're searching out God. It's not done just to merit anything. And the reason this is so important is what Peter says at the end of verse 2, that by it you may grow up in your salvation. This isn't a, a meaningless thing here. He's talking about growing up in our salvation. He's talking about perseverance. He's talking about sanctification. And if we don't persevere, if we aren't in the word, if we aren't craving this milk, we will not persevere to salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? Does this deny the perseverance of the saints? No. But what is the perseverance of the saints? It's a profound doctrine, but... Sometimes we conceive of it in our minds that the perseverance of the saints is we have a safeguard and we can do whatever we want and we can't fall away. And in one sense, that is true. But how does God carry out perseverance of the saints? It's through daily giving us the means of grace. It's through daily bestowing on us what we need. It's through him upholding us as we walk. Yes, we can't, as believers, as true believers, fall away, but we also must grow up in our salvation. We must grow. We must become sanctified. We must run the race. Now, God receives the glory. It's God working it in us. But he works it through this. He works it through his word, through the means of grace, through going to church and hearing his word proclaimed, through receiving the sacraments. That's also how we persevere throughout our struggles. 
verse 3, he asks a question. He says, in essence, because you have tasted that the Lord is good, he's, this is really a question he's saying, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. And he's expecting a positive answer. We have indeed tasted that the Lord is good. And because we have tasted that the Lord is good, then we will obey. Then we will desire the milk. Then we will read his word. We've tasted and seen that he is good, and we desire that. We desire him. We desire his goodness. And so why do we obey? We obey because the Lord is good, and we want to be nourished by this good being. Not for our own personal gain, not just for that, but we desire this. We seek to be obedient. And so we obey to be nourished, which presupposes that we are already in a relationship with Jesus, that we are already joined to him. This moves to our second point. Why do we obey? Because of the cornerstone. And this is verses 4 through 10. In these verses, we see what we are in Christ, how our relationship with him means that we are something that the world is not. Verse 4 calls Jesus a living stone that's rejected by men and then develops this imagery and calls him a cornerstone. I know that we all have heard the imagery and the words of cornerstone before, but that was the most important stone in a foundation of a structure. That stone had to be so square, so flat, so evenly placed because the rest of the structure depended on it. Every other stone was joined to that stone, placed perfectly flush against it. And if it was off, the whole structure would be off. This is a perfect image of what Jesus is in his church. He is this cornerstone through which every believer is joined and made into his temple. The imagery of the Old Testament has the temple as the center. The whole ceremonial system revolved around that. And then in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is this temple. And then in the epistles, we learn that Jesus is the cornerstone of the temple and that we are all a part of it. That we're all joined to this temple. To this cornerstone, we're all united to Jesus. And in these verses, we see that there are two sides to the cornerstone. There's one of union and building, and then there's one of stumbling and rejection. Apparently, this cornerstone is one that splits the world in two. Jesus' coming wasn't just something that happened in the Middle East a long time ago. It shook the world. It divided all people into two groups, believers and unbelievers. And we look at one, what the side of the believers are, joined to the cornerstone, joined to this true temple. Verse 5 is saying that the temple of the Old Testament that prefigured Christ is something we now are a part of, which then means in our question, why should we obey? Because we're holy. That Old Testament temple was a place where you couldn't go to if you were ceremonially unclean. You couldn't go to if you weren't worthy. You couldn't enter. There was areas and divisions all the way to the most holy place. Because a temple was the house of God. A place without sin, or supposed to be illustrating a place without sin. And as we are part of that temple, as we are members of it, we must then be pure and obey because we're joined to Christ. Will we take our members, will we take ourselves that are united to Christ and sin? We hear that and read that elsewhere in God's word. 
So why do we obey? Well, we obey because this is true of us. Because this is what we have been joined to. We too often forget that our obedience is not primarily to achieve something for ourselves. We can think that we must obey so that we will achieve something. So that we will achieve God's good pleasure. That he will like us and love us if we're just more obedient. That if we're not obedient, if we've sinned, well then God must not like us. We must be separated from God because we failed. And so we think that by our obedience we will get further in God's good graces. Now of course we are to obey, but does our obedience really function that way? You see, to think of it in that way, it means then that it's our merit that draws us nearer to God. But it's really Christ's. Now don't hear me saying then that it doesn't matter how we live. It does. How we live and how we obey is showing that we truly are saved. But it's not our obedience that merits our relationship with God. It's Jesus' relationship with God that we stand in and on. You might hear this, you might think, boy, that doesn't sound exactly right. That's, that's, almost, that's almost too good to be true. Our works, we, we need to do good works. People of God, we do. But what the catechism says is that our good works are out of gratitude. Gratitude of what Jesus has already done. Our good works are proof of the new life that Jesus has put in us. And this is why we obey. That's what Lord's Day 32 says. If Christ has accomplished all this, why must we do good? We do good because Christ, by his Spirit, is also renewing us to be like himself, so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us, and so that he may be praised through us. We don't do good so that we stay saved. We do good because we are saved. That is what we are as joined to this temple. That is what we are in relation to this cornerstone. You could think of it this way. We might ask the question, what's a better motivation for true good works? Is it the threat of punishment or is it gratitude? Now we are very, very familiar with obedience because of punishment. That's the way our society functions. That's the way nations function. Even the parent-children dynamic functions that way. Don't do this, or this might happen. Consequences for your action and punishment. But what is a better form of motivation, that punishment and that fear, or because you love the person and want to serve them? Would you rather have your employees, your nation, your children obey you because they love you and are, want to express that gratitude and are thankful? Well, that's why the Christian is to obey. Simply obeying because we're, it's a heartless obedience, we just need to do it, isn't true obedience. True obedience is from the heart. And we will also never overcome our sin and temptations if we're simply trying to muster up good work on our own power and our own strength. How's it working for you in fighting against temptations and sin by thinking, okay, I just need to try harder? Dig down deep. Just dig down deep and, and just keep, keep trying. Well, yes. Try. 
And try with every fiber in your being not to sin. Try with every fiber of your being to do good. But the way you overcome sin, the way you do good, is through love for God. Cultivating a relationship with him. And thus you won't do those things because it would mean slapping your Savior in the face. It would mean doing something that your Savior had to bear on the cross. And so we would not do that. You see the change in the Christian's motivation. The Christian's true motivation to do good is to please God. To draw nearer to him. And so as we ask the question, why do we obey? It's because this is, we are, this is who we are united to Christ. But then verses 7 and 8 show the other side of the cornerstone. Verses 7 and 8 show what it is to not be united to Jesus Christ. The SV translate these verses. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now do you see what you've been saved from? You've been saved from finding in your Savior, in the Son of God himself, offense. By looking at him and seeing that can't be right, That's not the way. There's only two people groups, and all of us fall into one of them. It's so interesting when you read this verse and ask the question, well, who is it that rejected God? Who is it that rejected the cornerstone? And the answer is the builders, the Jews, the priests, those who were in the temple every day, those who thought they knew God, those who thought they had it all figured out, those who thought in many ways, like many Christians do today, that God saved us, but in order to stay saved, you must follow the law. They thought they had God figured out. All right, we're saved in him. Now we need to tithe our cumin. Now we need to not work on the Sabbath. All of these may be good things if they're done through the right motivations, but they were done because they thought that they would achieve their salvation through living that way. That they needed to stay saved by following that path. And what is what happens to these builders is they stumble as they were destined to do. The ones who don't recognize the Savior are the ones who should have. God's own people, at least in name. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Each one of us has special standing before God that unbelievers do not. I don't say that so that we feel superior. I say that so that we see the grace of God. That we were saved from looking at Jesus and not only rejecting him, but finding offense there. Offense at Jesus. That that can't be the way. The builders didn't just reject the stone, they hated it. Just as the world does. Because whenever you seek to achieve your salvation through another means, 
you're despising Jesus and despising the chosen path of salvation that God has put in place. If you are truly built on the cornerstone of the temple, verses 9 and 10, tell us what we are. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why do we obey people of God? Because of that. We've been made priests. We've been made holy. And that's why we obey. And through that, we can glorify God and proclaim his excellencies. We don't live our life to achieve something through our own means. We live our lives to please God. The message of the gospel is not about having a comfortable life, about having a good marriage or a good job. It's about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and manifesting itself by the way you live in the world. That leads to our third and final point, which is brief. These are the last couple verses of the passage, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we do good because God is good and we desire that goodness and we seek him out. We do good because we're joined to him. We're part of his temple and we do good because we're his witness. Because we represent God in the world. Question answer 86 says as much, and we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. This is why we do good for witnesses' sake. As I was studying and reading for this message, I came across a quote that struck me. I want you all to really listen to it because this is very true. Sometimes we think that our witness is we need to give Bibles, we need to give tracts to people, we even need to you know, proclaim our testimony, and we do need to do that. And I'm not disparaging that in any way. But then I read this quote which really struck me. This commentator said, The world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us. They only hear about Jesus Christ. Do you feel that? Do you sense that responsibility? The world is all out there going about their daily lives, and most of them are not going to pick up a Bible and read it. Some will, and for that, God be praised, but most will not. Most are going to hear that you're a Christian, look at you, look to see how you're living, and form their opinion, not just of the church, but of God himself. How do we live reflects God. And is this not a profound motivation, then, for why we do good and why we obey Because we never want to reflect poorly on our Savior. This is why we do good. You see, we are aliens and foreigners here. We are a pilgrim church. We are a church militant that is right now being persecuted all throughout the world. This is not our final home. 
And yet sometimes we're more at home in the world than we are in church. Sometimes we're more at home with unbelievers than we are with believers. We all feel this. We all face it. It's easy. Who wants to be looked upon as weird? Who wants to stand up for what's right when everyone around you is doing something wrong and something that you may even want to do because it's a temptation? To stand against that takes profound courage. To stand against that is not easy. But that's why we do good. Because we love God that much. We must seek that. We must seek that as we do our devotions. We must seek that in our prayers. We're never going to do it perfectly on this earth, but we can grow. And we will grow. And this is why we obey. We obey because we desire to be witnesses to our Lord and bear his name. So you see, as we progress through this, these reasons for why we obey are not because we're afraid of punishment. The reason we started the service with with that question was, what's motivating us? Is it the threat of punishment? Is that what we're afraid of? No. How do we answer the question? If you could live any way you wanted to and still be saved, would you sin? And the answer is absolutely no, because the fact of the matter is, our punishment was already born. Yes, we serve God in fear. A righteous fear. We don't serve God in fear that we're going to hell. Because we trust in our Savior. We trust that he has overcome hell for us. And that is what we place our faith in and that is why we obey. As we go out from here, let's go with that propulsion behind us. Those are our motivations. And they're good. See how our service is a good thing and not something to be afraid of? Our service is then something that we actually want to do because we are grateful. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have sent your Son and that he bore our punishment. We thank you, though, that you still call us to do good works and that our command to follow your word has not been taken away, but rather changed in that now we desire it, now that we seek to desire it. We even know that the good works and the good we do was prepared for us beforehand, that they're not flowing even from our own strength, but they're gifts from you. And yet we also understand the mystery that we are also called to work, to persevere, to do good, which takes hard work, which takes struggle. And Lord, we pray that you would provide that in us, provide the motivation and the need for it. We pray that as we would go out, we would be good witnesses for you. That as people see us, as people read us, what they would see is, Reflections, though imperfectly, but reflections of you as we image our perfect Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.